Hello and welcome. This is the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Ross. And I am Gordon. Welcome back, Gordon. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Folks, this is episode number 142, and today we are going to chat about a topic near and dear to our hearts. <laughs> the proliferation of misinformation on that great bastion of Assumption and non-fact, the internet. Yes. And what we want to challenge is this conjecture that you're going to get better colors uh, and greater saturation in your digital photos if you underexpose. And I've heard that mentioned by many people mm -hmm. who should probably know better. Um, and in a lot of the, lot of the writing, um, uh, from people who are reputable. That's true. Uh, even well-known and well-established professional photographers who've been shooting digital for years, I still hear them say, well, I'm just going to underexpose a bit because it's going to improve the color. And... I believe like you do that this comes from the film days because in my experience, it does. In fact, we would always underexpose slide film. Yep. Kodachrome 64, one of the greatest slide films ever produced. Everybody that I worked with it, work, worked with it, <laughs> everybody that I worked with as well, we used to call it Kodachrome 80 because it set the ASA or ISO in our camera. Right. To 80 instead of 64 to underexpose it. Right. One third of a stop because it gave us richer color. And you had folks also do that with color negative film because if it's underexposed, there was more silver on the negative. Mm -hmm. And that would, in theory, then engender more detail when you pushed light through it to make a print. Um, so simplify that out. What happens to darks when you do that? Uh, the darks get darker. And what happens to the lights? The lights get darker. Mm -hmm. And the mid zones get darker. But overall, back in the day, people would say it looked better, right? It did. To the, to the eye it did because, uh, well, the, the docks, um, we weren't really looking for all that much detail in the docks. And uh, the otherwise light colors sort of dropped down a little bit and became more vibrant. None of that sounds awful. But then... No, but, and, and it worked. It, it worked well. Except we're not shooting film anymore. And that is the problem. Well, I won't say make the generalization that no one is shooting film anymore, but let's call it a very small proportion. Mm -hmm. You know, there are folks who still like to shoot film and more power to them, but this podcast is not for them. <laughs> no, we all, they probably already know this. They probably already do. And we are talking really photos and videos that tends to be a digital um, environment space. So we come to the digital world. 
the final images might look like they did in the film world, but is it the same? Mm, no, no, they're, they they look the same, but there is a crucial difference. So tell uh, so so tell the listeners how the digital world is different. Well, uh, to go back just a step, um, in the film world, you had lumps of silver that got exposed either more or less and either became brighter or darker. And that's the way it was. We don't have silver anymore. Instead, we have a series of data or information points uh, that are collected by the sensor and translated into tones and brightness and color and that's all we got. Yeah, and to, to to run the risk of putting people to sleep several times this episode, <laughs> at this point, what we're talking about here are the pixels. The pixels themselves on the sensor. A lot of folks don't think about sensors as having pixels, despite massive running in circles chasing megapixels. Right. Mega just means million. We have lots of pixels on the sensor. And each data point is actually made up in the common digital camera of four. One red, one blue, and two green. Okay. So we have R, G, B. B. And if you stuttered, it'd be R, G, G, B. <laughs> And the reason there are two green, because you're not asleep yet, is because that is where the human eye is most sensitive. Okay. But yes, it, it comes into, we have a red value, a green value, and a blue value, and we assign that to each pixel. Then we put that all together, we get an image. And the theory is, the more pixels I have, the better the image. Yep. It's a pretty theory. It's not true, but, because there's a little bit more to it than that. But that's fundamentally where digital comes from. When we talk about red, green, and blue, though, are we also getting tones, Shat lights, mm -hmm. shadows, mm -hmm. tints? Yes. And how do we how do we see that? Uh, basically, in terms of brightness, I would think. Yeah, that's brightness right. and, and darkness. So, or brightness for the pixels and darkness for the absence of pixels yeah, or the, or, or the absence of luminance, reacted luminance or reacted pixels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So if you think about it, let's use one of those receptors as an example. We may know that in classic eight bit representation, again, trying to keep it simple, the value, the luminance value, is somewhere between zero and 255. Where zero is, there isn't any. Mm -hmm. And 255 is, there's everything. Mm -hmm. Think zero is black, 255 is effectively white. Mm -hmm. So a red value of 240 is going to be a really, really light red. Yep. And a red value of 40 is going to be a really, really, really dark red. Right. But they're still going to be red yep. in that continuum. 
And so as each of these receptors gets a value, R, G, and B, that's how we get not only color, but the sense of shadow going towards the dark or tint going towards the light. Right. And it works fantastically well. Now, when people, people don't often think about this, but they are exposed to a tool or a phenomenon that kind of communicates this information to them. And it also engenders a lot of conversation, partly because it's misunderstood. So what is that tool, Gordon? Um, I think you're referring to a histogram. Exactly. And the histogram, uh, uh, certainly the current day cameras, uh, is pretty much available on every camera. And it uh, gives you a graphical representation of, I could say, brightness and darkness, where the brights are the number of pixels. Well, they're all the number of pixels, but the brights have more pixels and the darks have less or no pixels. Or no value. Or no value. No value in the pixels. No value, sure. So when we say the right-hand side of the histogram, we're referring to typically the whites and the lights? Yes. And we say the left-hand is referring to? Blacks and darks. And a histogram, by definition, is a distribution curve. Mm-hmm. So what we'll see in a histogram is at every value, and most histograms are 8-bit, between 0 and 255, luminosity value, we'll see a distribution of luminous values across that continuum. Right. And then if we look in something like Lightroom, where we see actually six colors, red, green, and blue, Mm -hmm. the primaries. Yes. And cyan, magenta, and yellow, Mm -hmm. the secondaries. And every secondary is constructed directly from two primaries. Right. When we look at that, we can see a histogram with potentially six different colors, but also a whole chunk of gray or whatever color the software vendor is choosing. Wherever we see gray in the histogram, it says the values are equal. Okay. So if I had a pixel density from zero to 255, where everywhere red, green, and blue were identical, the histogram would be a straight line. Right. Because the distribution would be flat. Right. So the histogram can be very useful because it can tell us from a luminosity perspective, which way our image is oriented. Right. To the, to the left, dark, to the right, brighter. Right. Now let's go back to the initial myth. What happens to the histogram when we underexpose? So now, um, just to reiterate what you said. So it used to be uh, said that the optimum exposure was if you got a nice shaped bell curve right down to the middle uh, and fading out both left and right. But if 
we underexpose. The bell curve may stay the same in appearance, but it's no longer in the middle of the histogram. It now starts, because you've underexposed, you have more pixels that have less value. So the darks start moving to the left and the whole histogram or the distribution of the brightness values shifts along with it. And, and that's exactly right. When, one of the considerations that we think about, because there is this perception that a good histogram is a bell curve, um, and that's actually not true. A good histogram represents the subject. So you're going it's going to vary depending on the lumin luminosity of the elements of the subject itself. A bell curve is a Gaussian distribution. It's a what we call a regular distribution. Right. And it would imply the we had the same luminance value for red, green, and blue for each of those colors, but changing equitably over the time with the most of them occurring where red and green and blue are, have a value of about 127, halfway <coughs> between zero and 255. Right. So hopefully nobody's fallen asleep or run away yet. <laughs> but that's really what happens. So when you look at a histogram from your photograph, it could look like it has valleys and spikes and mountains, and it will be perfectly correct. Yep. Because that's what the sensor saw. But to your point, if we've underexposed, we're going to take whatever that looks like and we will have dragged it to the left. Mm -hmm. And that means we are chunking the darks right, and taking away from the lights. Yep. Now, if we think about that, that worked for film, but we're not shooting film in this context anymore. So what it means is my blacks have now fallen off the scale. Yep. Because if black is naturally zero, and then I push that to the left, what used to be dark becomes black. Yep. And what detail is there in black? None. None. If what was white gets pushed to the left, is it still white? Nope. No, it's a tint. It's a tint of something. Of something. And it's going to depend upon the luminous value of each of those three colors. That's not going to work real well because we're no longer, and I'm going to reiterate the point that you made earlier, we're no longer talking about projecting through some type of emulsion. Right. Now we are representing what each pixel in the sensor saw through three luminosity values. Right. One for red, one for green, and one for blue. Right. Now, the reason this doesn't work for digital is that's not how sensors actually work. So, to a point, um, there's an article back from 2017 on the site, thephotovideoguy.ca, um, in the blog section, called it's A Guide to Exposing to the Right, or ETTR. ETTR 
doesn't exist because somebody thinks, I got an idea. We'll overexpose everything. That'll be good. It works this way because of how sensor math works. At a very simplistic level, how much data is there when there's no light? None. And if we add a little bit of light, are we getting a lot more data? You could be. Depends on how much lighter we get. Depends on how much light and how many, well, how much light, because that's moving at one or two uh, quotations stops. Yeah, exactly correct. So what we, what we learn from this, because we're working with luminosity data, the brighter or more luminous value we have, the more data we have to work with. So if I have arbitrarily eight units of data in the blacks, how many different variants of black can I have? Eight. Kind of makes sense, right? Right. If I have 128 units of white, how many different variants of white can I work with in my post-processing software? 128. Sounds better, doesn't it? Yep. So if I were to make my exposure and overexpose at time of capture, I'm giving the file more data at every luminous value. Mm -hmm. I'm getting more detail in my shadows. Right. I have more range to work with in my highlights. Right. And that's a legitimate kind of real world application because our goal is to get as much data as we can. Yes. Because you're, we're not looking at something we are visually seeing. We're now, or we should be thinking in terms of the number of data points or the amount of dots and dashes or whatever you want to call it. But, but the more of those that you have on the sensor and therefore in your file, the more you can adjust. And if I recall rightly from the graphs that you put up on your article, for every one stop that you go up, you double the amount of data points that you have in your file. Yeah, if we, if we make it very, very simple and use eight bit, eight bit, an 8-bit file, like a JPEG, like a JPEG, as an example, yeah, we double every time we move one stop if we choose to use an eight stop range. Right. If we have more stops, it won't necessarily double every stop, but it will double at each interval. It is always right. orders of magnitude of two. Right. So think about raise it to the second, right. raise it to the second, raise it to the second, raise it to the second. We're always adding. Right. And I think that we accept as digital photographers and editors, that for those of us who choose to edit, we'd like to have more stuff to play with rather than less. Yes. Even if our goal at the end is to get rid of a lot of that. 
we may choose to increase contrast and use curves or levels or whatever to change the look. But our ability to change the look is highly dependent on how much we start with. Right. Kind of like making an apple pie. If I try to make an apple pie with a dozen apples, I probably have a better chance of a decent pie than if I try to make an apple pie with one apple. Uh, yep. It really is that simple. So we've got this alternative. You're overexposing to shift the image to the right. But what's going to happen to my brights? Well, the brights will get brighter. Yeah, and my darks? And your darks will get brighter. And But what's going to happen to the color saturation? And the color saturation, as we see it, is going to get less. That's right. And so what happens is that people look at, who even try ETTR, they look at the back of the camera after they make the shot. Mm-hmm. And it looks, it looks washed out. Yeah, it looks awful. It looks horrible. Everything's kind of pastel-y. There's very poor contrast. The image looks like crap. It, it, it does. And they stop because they're missing one point that's critical when we think about exposing to the right. We're going to have to do something mm-hmm. with that image before it's finished. Yes. And what are we going to have to do? Uh, we're going to have to post-process it and move your data points around so that the saturation comes back and the docs come back. But the crucial point here is that when you make the docs look about what you wanted them to look by underexposing, you have in fact included a lot of data points in the dark now that did not exist before. So if there's detail in that dark, you will see it. Whereas before, if you moved it the other way, or even left it at neutral. Or even left it where it is. You either get a black blob with no detail, or you get noise. Right. Absolutely right. Because there is a a minimization that is happening to the data in those areas. But as you say, if I take that nominally overexposed, but now more data file and I pull its luminance value down, I'm doing that with a lot more data. Mm-hmm. And if I have more data, similar to our earlier allusion to if white has 128 different levels, and I pull that down so it's middle gray, it's middle gray, but with 128 different variants. Right. That's a good thing. Yep. Because it gives us a lot more latitude in our editing. Now, when we talk about exposing to the right, can you shoot that? Can you shoot natively in JPEG? You can. Uh, You can shoot uh, natively in JPEG. You can shift it to the right, but I believe must be done with a degree of caution because your sensor may see it and your sensor may record it, but when the file is, when the image is converted into a JPEG file, 
there is a huge loss of data. That's, that's the way the JPEG works. It's a compression file. So it throws out a whole chunk of data that can now no longer be used for the post-processing process. And attempts to do this, uh, ETTR adjustments on a JPEG file, uh, results may not be quite what you want them to be. They're going to be less satisfying because to your point, it's like I started my pie with 100 apples, but by storing my pie as a JPEG, JPEG fine, I throw 72 of the apples away. Yep. And so I'm working, I've gone to the trouble to gather more data, but before I work on it, I've thrown more away. Yes. That doesn't make sense. And so we tend to encourage people who are going to do post-processing of any kind, let alone ETTR, to shoot in raw. In raw. And because ETTR or overexposing in camera requires post-processing, why wouldn't you shoot in raw anyway? Right. Right? Unless you're not going to process, in which case, well. If you're not going to post-process, you're not going to do this I, overexposure at all. Yes. So uh, in, in that situation, the actual concept of slightly underexposing will probably work for you. Until you try to make an enlargement or do something else with the file, uh, then it doesn't work. Because there's less, less data. data. And what's going to happen, to the point you made earlier, what's going to happen to the blacks? They're going to chunk up. Yep. They become ugly. Basically because you've thrown an any away over 70% of the information that even made up the blacks. Yep. The file can't, you can't make something from nothing. Government expectations notwithstanding. <laughs> so we're going to encourage folks who want to follow this path to shoot in raw. Now you talked about the edit process. Adjust the blacks and the shadows to what? Whatever you feel like. Right. You're still the artist. You still get to decide. Mm -hmm. But now you have more paint in your paintbrush yep. to decide where that goes. And can you do that with the lights? Yeah. Of course you can. Because if we think about it, think about our basic sliders. Whites, blacks, highlights, shadows. Mm -hmm. Those four basic sliders give us massive control over those data points. Right. We do have to remember that every time we see a histogram, we're seeing an 8-bit histogram that represents a JPEG. Right. Even when we're working on a raw, on a, on a raw file. So don't, my, I would encourage people not to get hooked on the histogram too hard because it's an approximation. It's a guess. It's close. Like in horseshoes <laughs> or hand grenades. It's not, it's not completely accurate because there is no histogram for a raw file because a raw file is not an image. Right. It needs to be converted to something. And the fastest math is to do the JPEG conversion. Right. 
because everybody knows how to do that. And it's a very fast representation in terms of the histogram. So we can use those four sliders and we can get to a much better looking image. Right. You'll, very, you'll very get, quickly. You'll get the result that you wanted, the quote, underexposed. But you will get an underexposed, darker blacks, brighter, brighter whites, because you've got separate sliders for those two different points. And you're also going to be able to lift the detail in the shadows. Yep. And drop detail out of the highlights. How do we get detail in clouds? We drop highlights. Drop them. How do we get details in shadows? We lift them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's no rocket science here. Or as a former president at one side, I saw you no rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. But you also will elocute that there are some other tools that can allow you to define these and manipulate them even more. And these are tools that are common in basic editors like Lightroom. Right. Give us an example. Well, um, you've got your curves. Um, the curve slider allows you to put with whatever you feel like, wherever you feel like it. Yeah, and Lightroom and most other editors have some way of saying, for this value of luminosity, I would like it brighter or darker. Mm -hmm. Lightroom calls it the targeted adjustment tool. Every piece of software gives it a goofy name. But you click on it, you drag it up to make it brighter, you drag it down to make it a little darker. Right. And there's no rule for curves. You know, Well, you want a perfect desk curve. Nope. No. I want a curve that shows me the image the way I want to see it. The way my eyes saw it. Right. Because my eye is going to see more than what the sensor is going to see. Right. In terms of range of tones and all that. So if you've ever been concerned about well, I read that the human eye can see 20 or 22 or 24 stops. Pick a number. <laughs> and my camera can't see that many. So I can never get that. Well, you can get a lot closer. Yep. If you give the file more data. Yep. For yourself to work with. And this is a good way to deal with that. Now, another tool, because we've talked about luminance. Yes. Is your HSL tool. Right, because what are the other two elements of HSL? Luminance uh, is a third. Yes, is uh, saturation oh. and hue. And hue. And how do they work? Pretty much the same as everything else. Except they work at a color level. Right, sorry. No, don't be sorry, but you're right. I want to shift the blue. Right. I want to make it more navy, less aqua. Yeah. But I don't want to change any other color. Right. That's what hue sliders will do. I've got a blue sky. I would like it more blue, please. Uh, when was the last time anyone ever said, I've got a great blue sky in this image. I'd like to wash it out. <laughs> I'm sure it's happened, but I don't ever recall hearing that. But I do recall, what could I do to make my blue sky more saturated? Right. Almost like I had remembered to take the polarizer in the first place. Yep. Well, there is no polarizing slider. There is no post-processing that we can do that will do what a polarizing filter can but do. But you can fake it. But you can fake out a bluer sky using hue, saturation, and luminance. And it's actually a three-step process. Pick the hue you like, increase the saturation, and drop the luminance. Right. 
So using those things, you you can make your image look pretty much anything you want with about as much detail as you want. And we didn't have to go to Photoshop. No. We didn't have to do any custom masking, although the new masking yeah, in Lightroom is, is pretty <laughs> awesome. But you don't have to because you're working at an individual color level when you're using hue, saturation, and luminance. We're not right. changing the overall brightness. We're changing the brightness of a color. Yep. And we get to choose which hue it is. And we also get to choose what level of saturation is applied while we're manipulating hue and luminance. HSL is an incredibly powerful tool. If you have the data. If you have the data. It's just like curves. Curves are amazing. I mean, you've suffered through seeing me play with curves mm -hmm. and how much I, I get out of curves. But the only way I can do that is if I have the data. Yes. I can't make a curve out of two points. That's called a line. Well. Straight. <laughs> it, it's a, it, all lines are curves, but that's a, that's a whole cosmology thing. We won't go there. So we agree that you could shoot JPEGs, but you're far, far better off to be shooting in RAW. So why don't people th do this? I think probably for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, there's maybe an incomplete understanding of this whole concept of data points. That's, that's fair. That's probably the first thing. Uh, and if you don't understand the concept that you're not looking at colors now, you're looking at dots and dashes or SOSs or whatever you want to call it, uh, then you tend to not see the value in this. The other thing is uh, not everybody wants to spend the time um, post-processing. They say, well, you know, I can get it close enough to where I want it, want it to be in camera by doing this. And then I don't have to spend another 10, 15 minutes working on every slide. Well, okay, that's a personal choice. It's it's accurate, but it is a personal choice. Right. If you want more, there's no such thing as a free lunch. No. Nope. You've got to do some work for it. But uh, but if you if you are the kind of person who says, this, this looks quite nice, I want to make this into the best photo I can possibly get then you should have shot in RAW, and if you haven't taken the image yet, you should shoot in RAW. The other th thing that I run into with folks who have said, I want to do this, I want a pro TTTR. They get out on a shoot, and they forget over a <laughs> close. Yeah. Hey, <coughs> listen, I don't have to look far to find that person. He's me, I've forgotten too. And that's why now, before I go out and I know that I'm going to be working with trying to maximize dynamic range because I'm going with the intent for a nice big print, I will set exposure compensation before I leave. Right. And I'm just going to lock it in. Right. Because I'm going to have more data and I'm not going to depend on looking at the back of the camera to say, is that a good image or not? Because first off, it's too freaking small and I can't tell. But secondly, 
I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to edit it on a great giant screen. Right. And I'm going to know if I screw up the focus. And if I screwed up the focus, all the overexposure in the world isn't going to fix that. There's nothing I can do in curves and HSL and with sliders to fix the fact that I screwed up focus. Right. So if you want to try this, maybe set your ex your uh, automatic exposure compensation before you leave, which then begs the question, well, what do I set it to? I'm going to make it easy. Set it to plus two. Is that right? Who Don't knows? know. But it's a darn good place to start. It will give you literally four times as many data points hey, I, in every zone, except for white. Except for white. Because white is going to be white, mm -hmm. no matter what you do. Do... Uh just go back for a minute. The, the The reason I know this is going back, I'm going to say 2014, 2015, whenever it was that I did my mentorship with you, I brought you some feels images. feels like a couple of centuries it ago It does now. feel like that, yeah. I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> well, I'm here. <laughs> you known me that long. Jeez. Um, you were going to talk to me about post-processing. And I brought you some images that I had taken at the flower show. Forget its name now. Um, there were some that were okay. And there was one that was hopelessly blown out. As far as I could tell. And I said, which, which of these do you want to work with? And you took the one that I thought had no hope whatsoever of getting done. And then you processed it just like you've talked about. You brought the brights down and the, the darks up and you fiddled this and you fiddled that. And I, you couldn't see me at that point, but I think I was standing behind you and my mouth was hanging open because I, I couldn't believe what you had just dragged out of that washed out image. But the only reason I was able to do that, and you're right, I couldn't see you because my hair was longer and the <laughs> eyes in the back of my head were, were covered. But you brought the image with enough data to make it recoverable. Yeah, because you had suggested to me, well, you know, go, go and shoot it one over and two over and three over, whatever, and then, you know, let's take a look at it. So... Uh, I, I don't remember what the settings were. I just know that the whole image looked blah until you went to work on it. And I, I was hooked from that point on. And the, the other challenge that, that I've encountered over the years is I've had folks come with a, a badly underexposed image. Right. Can we fix this? No. No, actually, we, we can't. We can lift everything, but if I lift stuff that has a low amount of data, we're going to get something we didn't ask for. You mentioned it earlier in this episode, and it starts with N. Noise. Noise. Now, certainly a lot has changed since 2014. We now have some anti-noise or noise correction software 
that is significantly better than it was eight years ago. Mm. You know, Topaz Noise AI, or as an example, or the Nuon One, no noise. I can't say that. It always <laughs> looks like no noise. It's a good thing I'm not in marketing. Those tools will help a lot. But people forget that anti-noise is anti-contrast. Yeah. It's reducing the contrast between two adjacent pixels to hide the noise. Right. What's that going to do to our detail? It's going to diminish, diminish it. Yeah. And then when the detail is diminished, what slider do we rush to? Contrast and... And sharpening. Yeah, and sharpening. And, and what is sharpening? And... It's a contrast increase. <laughs> so we've got noise. Beat down the noise. Oh, it's dull and flat. Turn up the sharpening. Oh, it's noisy. Yeah, so all, all of that, I mean, we it works. But uh, that is a step that you, if you do it right, you may not have to do. Now, on one hand, you were saying you've got to uh, post-process these images. You do. But this is a proce process you're doing for the betterment of the image. The noise reduction software that you're going to run is doing an additional step that if you do it right in the first place, you don't have to do. Right. So. Right. Noise reduction is really just a correction for failed exposure. Yeah, pretty much. Because how much noise is there in a white sky? Because there's so much data. Yep. We see noise in the dark. Yes. Because there's less data there. So if we overexpose our darks and then we drag them back so they're dark again, we've taken more data. Yes. And what does that mean? That means less noise. Less potential for noise. And then even if we're looking at the image just on a smartphone or just on a computer, and by and I'm not minimizing the value of those tools, but they are lower resolution devices. Right. They're not a 300 dot per inch uh, file that's printed on a printer that prints 2400 dots per inch. Right. Those are high resolution outputs. Screens... Phones, tablets, they're not high-resolution outputs. McMarketing notwithstanding, they just aren't. So when you choose, because it's a choice, to expose to the right, overexpose, and post-process, because one requires the second, you have better results for when you want to go print. Right. Not just for what you see on screen, but also for when you want to go print. Right. And many of our listeners have embraced printing as a way to get great joy out of their images. Because nothing feels as good as your own image in a big print. Whether it's hanging on your wall or it's, you know, given as a gift. Right. So... What I would add here is 
if you're going to print, learn how to overexpose and process. Mm -hmm. You're going to be happier. Right. Your colors are going to be greater. Your range of tones is going to be greater. It's going to be pretty awesome. Yep. Do you think we missed anything, Gordon? Oh, maybe, but uh, nothing, nothing that anybody's going to listen to. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yes. We're now going to spend seven days talking about sensor math. No, we're not. Nope. Nope. Because you know who listens to that? Nobody. Even insomniacs don't <laughs> listen to that. They say, nope, I think I'd rather hit myself with a hammer. So for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I'm Ross. I'm Gordon. We will speak to you all again real soon.